0: Why learn computer science? Like what is the point if you're already able to kind of make your app well enough?
1: Uh ego? <laughs> like I really think <laughs> that's all it is.
2: Couchbase is an enterprise class, multi-cloud to edge, NoSQL database architected on top of an open source foundation. It's unique because it was formed by the collision of two ideas from different original projects. Couchbase combines a memory-first design built for high performance with a SQL-friendly query language called Nickel that accesses key values in JSON documents for flexibility. It's easy for developers to use, supports mobile development, and offers SDKs for Java, .NET, JavaScript, Go, and Python. Try out their online nickel query tutorial to see how easy it is to get JSON data back from a select statement. Try the query at couchbase.com slash tutorial.
3: Hey, everyone, and welcome to the Stack Overflow podcast. I'm Sarah Chips. I'm here with my two lovely co-hosts, Paul and Ben. Can you say hi, hello, Paul, and Ben?
0: Hello, hello. Hello. It's me, Paul. <laughs> <laughs>
3: Today we are joined by Saran Yabarek, who is here to talk a bit about Code Newbie, which now is a part of the Dev platform. Welcome, Saran. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks so much for joining us. Can you tell us a little bit and our audience a little bit about Code Newbie
1: and Dev? Sure. So CodeNabe was started uh, a little over six years ago, and it was really a response to my own learn to code journey. So I was in tech for a bunch of years doing tech startup stuff, but never anything technical. I was always working alongside the engineers. And frankly, I was jealous. I felt like they had the cool jobs, they had the job security, they had like the career, you know, and I kind of felt like I was to be frank, like kind of expendable. And I thought, man, I really be one of, one of those people. And I really want to have an impact on the organizations I work with. So I quit. I learned how to code on my own for a few months. Then I did a boot camp, And what I learned from that boot camp experience was that having a community is everything. I mean, just having the people around you who knew what it was like when everything fell apart and who knew what it was like when everything finally came together, just all those ups and downs of learning to code. It was so valuable to have those people around you. And so I thought that. And I said, man, to, to find that community for me cost me three months without a salary and $11,000, which is not something that most people, you know, can, can afford. Um, and I was really lucky that I was able to do that. And even to do that for me, I had to borrow money from my mom, you know, not everyone has that support system. And so I said to myself, I really want to create a way for people to find that type of community and that type of support without having to, to pay such a huge price tag. And so I started the CodeNubi 2021. Twitter chat, which is a Twitter chat that we still do. We've done over 300 of them um, every Wednesday night at 9 p.m. And it was really just an excuse to get people to talk about themselves and their own journey. So we tweet, you know, where'd you get stuck this week? And what was your favorite part of coding? And what are you using to code? And, And that kind of thing. And people would respond. And eventually, they would start talking to each other. And that was really the point, right? Like, you start talking to me, but then you hear someone go, oh, I love JavaScript. Oh, man, I just started JavaScript, you know? And so you build community that way. And about um, maybe six months into doing that, I thought to myself, you know, Twitter is a great way to have a lot of conversations at the same time, but it's not a great way to have one conversation really in depth. I mean, you can try to go deep with someone, but you'll probably end up upset at the end of it. And so I thought podcasting is a much better tool, much better medium to really focus in on one topic, one person, one story, and just go all the way deep. And so we started the Code to Be podcast and about two months into doing the podcast, i got an an email from a company who said, Hey, I'll give you 200 bucks if you run an ad on your show. And I was like, Oh, I can make money from this. <laughs> so that's kind of what prompted it to move from being just a little side project to actually being a full business. And so six years in, we have our two shows, BCS podcast, which teaches computer science, the CodeNewbie podcast, which interviews people on their coding journey. We've had a bunch of different meetup groups all over the country, all over the US, and we have our flagship conference that we do each year. And so about, I think it was maybe a year ago at this point, I reached out to Dev and I said, hey, I'm trying to figure out, you know, the long-term vision of CodeNewbie and, you know, what makes sense for it. Is it something I continue to do full-time? Should I hire someone to run it full-time? Is it something that makes sense as, you know, having giving it a home in a in a bigger organization and in that conversation Ben basically said, "Hey, well maybe we have a home for it." And that's kind of what prompted that conversation. And so the the deal closed uh, end of year 2019 and we've been happily part of their family for the last 7 months uh, and it's been going great.
2: Very cool. So when you were working in tech startups, but were just sort of peeking over the shoulder at the engineering, what kind of jobs were you doing pre-engineering?
1: I was doing uh, some business development stuff, a lot of sales and marketing. It was a startup, so really it was like all hands on deck. You know, like there's one job I had where my title was business development associate, but I also had to do, you know, a little bit of branding here or there. I had to do some social media copy. You know, I got to do fun like strategy stuff, but also if we need the colors of our brand, you know, switch from light pink to dark pink, um, I was also the person who did that. (laughs) So uh, I got to do a little bit of everything. Uh Yeah.
2: And so having sort of worked, I guess, in a way to build your own business and then have it acquired, are you now cross-functional, like, you know, doing engineering and doing all the other things that you did before? Or do you have those responsibilities spread across like a small team?
1: So um, I feel like I have the best job in the world now because I get to have all the fun parts of running Code Newbie without any of the worry of, of running Code Newbie. So before, um, when I was doing it full time, a lot of my time was spent, some of it was creative and some of it was production, you know, producing the podcast, hosting the show, interviewing people, which was fun. But then I spent, you know, at least half of the time just worrying about the money, you know, and just trying to find sponsorships and making sure our sponsors were happy and, right. you know, collecting the bills and invoices. So now I don't have to do any of that, which is wonderful. So now I get to be, you know, have editorial input and guidance and I get to still interview people and have say, but I don't have to do kind of the nitty gritty work of making sure it functions as a business.
3: Has your community evolved since joining Dev? Is it the same folks you're seeing all the time? What does that look like?
1: That's a great question. Um, I think for the most part, we've had a lot of overlap uh, already when we first joined, where a lot of the people who are part of the code newbie group um, were very familiar with Dev and have posted on Dev, and the people who were part of Dev, you know, listened to the show. So there's already a good chunk of overlap, but I definitely feel like in addition to being part of Dev, just the fact that we had our new, our, our latest podcast called The Basiest Podcast, we've been attracting people who are a little bit more senior. I think that folks who are outside of the immediate newbie world have definitely caught wind of us and and we were a little bit more visible to them. Um, so yeah, I definitely feel like our community's expanded a bit since then.
3: One thing I have found in a world where not, you know, about half of folks have computer science degrees and half don't, is the farther you get along on your journey, the harder it is to admit that you don't understand those, you know, particular computer science concepts. Have you observed that? And the folks that are joining, how do you make that accessible for them and not Like, did you just say that you don't understand how uh, Andor works and you've been doing this for 10
1: years? (laughs) Yeah, so I feel um, I feel really lucky in that when we started doing the BCS podcast, I was only a few years into coding. So I felt like I had permission to admit what I didn't know. You know what I mean? Like I was still like new enough that it was. It was acceptable, so I don't feel like I had the same pressure of someone who's been coding for like 20 years and didn't know some basic things. But I was also really lucky because um, I had a co-host named Vaidehi Joshi And she wrote a blog post once a week for a year where she said, you know, I don't know computer science. I don't have that degree. I've always wanted it, but let me see if I can teach myself. And so she taught herself a computer science topic every week. She wrote a blog post about it. And I basically said, Hey, let's take that blog post and turn it into a podcast. So that was, you know, really easy to do, right? The content was already written for us. There was no kind of extra legwork to do. And we just transformed that into a show. And so we had a really great Setup where she was the teacher and I was the student. And so I would say like, you know, what is binary and how do you count to three? And then she'd go, well, first we start here. And it became like this really friendly, accessible way where one of the co-hosts is admitting, I don't know what in the world is going on, you know? So as the audience member, as a listener, it gives you instant permission to say, I too don't know what's going on. But I think also just the idea that you're learning, you know, at the convenience and privacy of audio means that, you know, you're, you're, you're not admitting to anyone. You know what I mean? Like you're not in, registered in a classroom of people and you feel self-conscious, you know, you're just really learning at your own pace. So I think the fact that it was a podcast, you know, versus different mediums, uh definitely. Helped with that.
0: So six years in newbies are no longer newbies, right? That's true. How, how has talk a little bit about that? Like the, you've seen people grow in their careers. You've seen people, uh, I'm sure people have been in touch. Like, what do you think, Because you're seeing lots of people up close, like what's a good first year? Like, how? What are the the markers of growth that you see for people who are coming to this industry and then trying to get to the next step?
1: Oh, that's a great question. So I think uh, one of the initiatives that's come about in the past, maybe three, four years, is called 100 Days of Code, which I really appreciate. It's very simple. It's just a hashtag called 100 Days of Code. And every day for 100 days straight, you code something. And it can be five minutes a day. It can be an hour, two hours. It's just something. You do something every single day. And so that's been a really great way of measuring your own success, right? And so seeing people go, day 67, finally got you know my JavaScript function to work. You know, Whatever that is, and just seeing people progress through that has been huge. So, I think that's been a really easy way to measure people's success. Other things that I think about are you know, did people complete their boot camp? Did people complete their own curriculum? A lot of times, I mean, boot camps, you know, depending on the one you go to, aren't always affordable options. Mm-hmm. So, a lot of times people create their own curriculum. They use Free Code Camp as another really popular tool that has curriculums built in and everything is free. And they have certification programs and everything is free. So, um, did you complete those? Um, But I also love seeing how people use that year to create content and give back in some respect. So did you write that first blog post? Did you do that little talk at a meetup? And it's one of those things where obviously in the first year, it's super intimidating to go on a stage and tell anyone anything. Obviously now with coronavirus, you can't do that anyway. But being able to find those little opportunities where you can pay it forward even a little bit, I think is really nice. Um, I had to learn Python for school a few months ago and I was, you know, I already know how to code. I know Ruby, but I don't know Python. And so I was going to these really, really super basic intro level blog posts that were probably written by like beginner people. And I was so grateful to have those really simple, obvious seeming blog posts, because even in my position, I, I I don't know Python, you know? So I think that, um, when people appreciate that and people say like, I may not know that much, but I know just enough to write one little thing, maybe answer one little question, um, on Stack Overflow, you know, like having those opportunities to give back is really inspirational.
0: I'm somebody who comes along. I learn because this is how I learn. I mean, I learned by copying, cutting and pasting and doing. I I learned it years ago. Right. And then before there was a stack, then the The computer, why learn computer science? Like, what is the point?
1: I think it's ego and uh, an imposter syndrome. I think that people, especially people who are really experienced in coding, they just you know, they don't feel like they belong, they feel like a fraud. They're sitting next to their coworker or maybe even people who report to them who have computer science degrees and they're really self-conscious about it. So I think it's mostly that. I think there's also um, just plain curiosity. like I've always wondered what is a computer science degree really about like what? What what do you really know? Mm-hmm. You know, and there's just a, a big question mark there. So I don't think it has anything to do with career development or anything like that. I mean, ultimately it's not really the knowledge that matters with computer science. It's literally just having the degree and even that, you know, can only get you so far. So yeah, I don't think there's anything actually useful about it. I think people are just really curious and they just wanna have that that information.
2: I mean, I, I guess I was gonna say just one thing about that. Like when you're able to understand things in a certain way. I feel like you're able to, you know, if you're an auto mechanic, look under the hood. But like if you're working somewhere that is a digital environment, you have a better sense of how realistic things are. Like if somebody's mm-hmm. asking for a product change or a feature change, or you work on marketing, like you said before, and they, they need this color turned from, you know, red to pink or black to blue. You know, like when I was working at The Verge, we used to have the CMS updated and sometimes i would be like how is it possible that this like little <laughs> tweak that all the reporters have been asking for for 3 months can't be just be done it seems mm-hmm, like mm-hmm. this is nothing <laughs> and we talked about this with dark mode well actually it is it's not a big change but it breaks 50 other things so before we make that we got to fix you know all this so i feel like having that understanding kind of maybe also makes it easier to communicate across departments and to like understand if I'm asking for some product support because I want this feature change, is that reasonable? And in what time frame is that reasonable? Or is computer science more abstract than that? See,
0: the great thing about computer science, learning computer science to me, is that you actually figure out how utterly banana cakes things are deep down inside of the computer. <laughs> You're like, oh, oh, you know, because software – Programming languages <laughs> are just software, and they actually cover up an enormous amount of complexity. But when you're when you're working with them, you feel that you're controlling the computer directly. You're not. There's like eight million no. layers in between you and the silicon. So many layers. And you get down to that silicon, and it's like, yeah, actually, we do like seven hundred things at once, and none of them make any yeah. sense. And you're like, oh, I don't ever want to look at. That's like <laughs> looking into into like a giant fish's mouth. And you're like, I want to get out of there. I don't want to be I anything mean, <laughs> right. to do. So no, it's it's actually like Fish. we're so protected by the industry and so like. Abstracted away from what's actually happening low, low, low level, but what is really good is it does teach you like how important programming languages are to take away oh, that pain. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah. one thing they don't tell you about
3: the infinite monkey theorem is it takes them years to come up with Shakespeare, (laughs) but they come up with WordPress like
0: twice a week, actually. Oh Oh. you just no, no, sir. You just you threw like thirty percent of the web under the bus. Just like jQuery wants them up. Oh, yeah. No. <laughs> Paul
2: always says this the smaller you don't want to get too small. It's like when Ant Man goes into the quantum realm, you know, you may <laughs> never come back out. You want to just stay at a high level.
1: Yeah. I'm with you. Like when we finish um the series, I think it took us like It's funny. It took her a year to write the blogs and I think the blog posts. And I think it took us like three years to actually cover them Mm -hmm. as a podcast. Mm -hmm. But anyways, what I definitely appreciated is that there's so much in computer science that doesn't that like barely relates to what i actually do like it, there's just so much distance in between and it really makes you appreciate programming languages and the tools and the software and the frameworks like it really makes you appreciate all that stuff because like to me it feels like you know i'm trying to make scrambled eggs and i'm learning about like the molecular structure of you know protein yeah, or, yeah. Or, or, the func-
0: or the function of your liver right you're just like <laughs> yeah <you're> not- <laughs> it's a better one yeah. that's
1: a better one yeah yeah exactly so there's a, i mean there's a huge huge gap and i'm I'm really happy about that gap. I'm happy to be on this side of that gap.
3: One thing I think about all the time, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on this, Saran, is how I would change how computer education or programming education is done in universities. right? Because like, there seems to be so many different verticals that are mushed into four years. How would you, how would you change it if you had a magic
2: wand? Mm, yeah, the Code Newbie College course. Let's hear the it. Code
1: Newbie College curriculum. Oh my goodness, that'd be so much fun. Well, it's a little hard to say because, you know, I haven't gone through a computer science degree myself. So I'm not sure exactly, you know, the way it works and what it's taught. But I asked almost every podcast guest I have who's done a computer science degree. I asked them, you know, was it worth it? What was it like? Um and I actually got to interview, oh my God, his name is Escaping Me Right now, but he does uh, the Harvard CS50 course, like the very, very famous intro to computer science course amazing professor, great interview. And so the biggest thing that I've the biggest complaint that I've heard is that you just don't learn any real world applications. You don't really learn the modern frameworks and you don't learn the modern languages. And I think a lot of schools are now finally changing to Python and JavaScript. I think in the last like couple of years, the main language, I think Stanford's main language is now Python, if I'm not mistaken. Mm. Um, I know at Columbia, it's um, like Python is very heavily used. And so now I think we're using more modern languages and modern frameworks. But that was a huge complaint across everyone I talked to. It was just like not using modern technologies that are and, I, and I, maybe modern isn't the right word i would say job ready technologies right. right and just things that people are using you know for the jobs they're going to get after they graduate and i think the other thing is just product development isn't taught right like when you think about being a software engineer on a team it's not just about literally what you are building it's about what you're building together it's about working with the designer working with the pm working underneath your manager there's a whole system that you were a part of and from my Understanding of computer science degrees, that is not taught. And the way products actually come together isn't something that's really that's expressed and, and really focused on. So those are probably the two things that would change.
2: That's interesting. I mean, right, there's all of these sort of like Silicon Valley industry legends about going to school, starting to study computer science, and deciding that you have found product market fit with your startup idea, leaving and going on to, you know, become a CEO yeah. of a company. And so it's almost like you were saying. If if the abstract is less interesting to you and you're you're actually building things on the on campus and seeing that people are responding to it, you're like, I'm out of here. Forget yeah. this. <laughs> why am I paying so Harvard? True. Like, yeah. Uh, yeah, why am
3: I paying them eighty thousand dollars when I can be picking? <laughs> so.
2: The only thing I could think of yeah. was, was yeah. I think Page Rank was like Larry Page's senior thesis. I think that was like I went all the way through. And did like yeah. a PhD on it. I think or it was a PhD. Yeah, yeah.
1: that's yeah, what I remember exactly. his PhD and thing. And they're like, yeah. "What yeah.
2: if we did this for advertising?" Yeah. The, yeah. The, <laughs> class I
1: would, the class I
3: would teach, I think, is was Rails actually web scale that you could oh. you could do you could do a real deep dive on that. And I think that would help a lot Ooh. of people coming out being like, how do I evaluate technologies and mm-hmm, mm-hmm. how do these things change and what's the culture like? And that kind of thing. Mm, I think that's good those one. things are lacking. Yeah, definitely. Just, just the term web
0: scale is extremely loaded.
3: <laughs> it would be me and Paul just arguing for hours. Yeah. <laughs>
2: If you got a degree in economics and then you wanted to run a business, you'd probably have to leave and either get real-world experience or go get a like a, you know, like an MBA, right? Like it, there there's a level of abstraction there that doesn't allow you to just simply w- walk into a job interview.
0: It depends where you're going. Like a, a giant org can absorb the people working on low-level file systems or mapping around Google, like there's a nice clear path from comp sci to the work that they're mm-hmm. doing because it's mm-hmm. it's mm-hmm. literally about ag- algorithms and data models, right? And so So there's that. And then, But the people who are, like, building a web platform or updating some JavaScript code in order to, you know, fix some bugs that, that are in the form, which is a, the entry level for hundreds of thousands of engineers, they don't need to know all that stuff. They just don't. Like, it, it doesn't, it's not bad or good. They just don't need to know it. And meanwhile, pure comp sci folks often come out and are really puzzled by the actual work, which is moving JIRA tickets, being on a team. <laughs> no, for real. I mean, that's like 80, you know, a large amount of the work that engineers do is now increasingly social, there was a big moment to sort of close this thought out, right? Which is that MIT, the, the, the legendary, like the Harvard class, they have their legendary comp sci class. And it was organized around this book called The Structure and Interpretation of Computer Programs, and which gets uh, shortened to SICP. And it was all around the programming language scheme. And I mean, that book is dense. It is pure Compsci, And you end up like building a compiler in scheme. And just like, it's intense. Wow. And then there one day they were like, you know, we got to move this to Python. And, and sort of reframe it because really the way the programming happens now is that you get libraries and systems and then you interact with them in different ways and you still need to know all the computer science underneath that's MIT, but like teaching it in purely abstract elevated ways making less and less sense. And This happened probably five, maybe even 10 years ago and it, like the world exploded. This was like the whole foundation of, the, of computer science as it was understood, just like kind of breaking. But the reality is that everybody, including the super geniuses, goes on to npm or onto you know or or downloads using pip or whatever they do in ruby land I don't know What's it gems gems, gems. that's right you know, and, and, yeah. and gets their stuff and then builds out of those Lego pieces. And it, it doesn't matter how advanced you are, you're going to do some of that. All right. So,
2: Saran, so like, would that make the sort of rise of boot camps and these shorter form educational opportunities and things like even Code Nubian Dev, those are more like the technical university, the two year college, that I just want the nuts and bolts that would let me enter the workforce kind of education, right?
1: Sort of. I think that I would say a lot of it is also getting a four-year degree is not an option. Mm. You know, like I'm... 28, I'm 32, I'm way past my, you know, I'm not in my early 20s where I can just drop everything, you know, leave my family, go live in a dorm. You know what I mean? That lifestyle isn't very realistic. Also, I need a job, and I need to continue working and paying the bills. And so I think it's more of just, you know, what are your realistic options? And I think that boot camps and learning how to code and stuff, those are just the best options that we have available. Like, I think that's really what it comes down to in terms of it being financially feasible, time-wise, you know, it's the most time-efficient thing to do because you know adults we got bills to pay and we can't just you know drop everything and just focus on learning you're making
2: a great point right which is that a lot of people in the boot camps may be older and doing a career transition i would love to see a breakdown of yeah like how many people are going into that you know as their first move like are there 18 to 22 year olds who are like forget college or i did a year of college i didn't like it i'm doing a boot camp and going right into the workforce instead i wonder what that demographic breakdown is
1: like I'd be interested in that too.
3: Uh, Yeah, what I've seen from these classes that I, you know, I've been on the, I've worked at boot camps, I've spoken to boot camps, and this is purely anecdotal, but I don't see a lot of eighteen-year-olds. It definitely happens, but it's fairly rare. The one thing that always surprised, the two things that surprise me are always how many doctors and lawyers there are. You know, like it's not a majority of people, but it's just like a lot of people that you're like, wow, you're in a fairly lucrative career, but this is something you're really excited about. And how many new grads there are? How many like um, university new grads will go on to a boot camp because they don't they want to get that practical knowledge that they're not getting in school. It's definitely, not, oh, I think mm-hmm. the majority of people are, Sarah, who you're talking about is the folks that are in their late 20s, early 30s, realizing that they want to do this and moving over. But I definitely, those are the folks I'm most surprised about.
2: That's interesting, mm-hmm. Sarah. Because I do remember when we had the Pursuit fellows come to the Stack Overflow office. Yeah, I felt like the age range was was pretty young. Maybe there's a lot of people, and this happened to me, who graduate with a degree in dance or philosophy. And they're like, whoops, (laughs) I either need to get another degree or, yeah, get some kind of training in order to, like, you know, find my way into a lucrative career. Otherwise, it's like back to academia for me, you know, for the next six to eight years.
1: Right. Yeah. Yeah, I've definitely heard those stories. I met um, – I had an a informational virtual coffee with someone recently exactly in that position. Um, I forget what she majored in in undergrad, but she, like, just graduated, and she was like, oh, my mom told me about coding, and it's actually really cute. Her and her mom are going through the boot camp together, which uh-huh. I think is, like, just – most adorable oh, that's thing. adorable. It's adorable, yeah. And she's like, yeah, I've, I've like heard about coding. I never really had a chance to really dig into it in college, but, you know, don't have a job yet, so. <laughs> <laughs> this
2: just confirms that well. Liberal Arts Education in America has just become a four-year summer camp
1: mm. yeah, <laughs>
2: uh, where you spend a ton of money to have fun and leave with yep. nothing that will nothing. make you employable. It's also
0: adorable until yeah. the mom is, like, really into Java and the daughter is, like, <laughs> you know, if the daughter gets really wow. into, like, functional programming and now, now Thanksgiving they is ruined about it but <laughs> maybe a lot of people are going
2: to take this route over the next year or two because they've lost the ability to go back to college on campus so it's like well there's no mm-hmm. social scene mm-hmm. there's no idyllic campus there's no this or that maybe i should just be investing in something that a i can learn remotely and b leads me into a pretty lucrative career for which i can be hired and work remotely you know so like in a lot of ways it might make a ton of sense we might see a huge boom in
1: that yeah it's very much an economic decision. Mm-hmm. Like for for most people, not everyone. I think for a lot of people, like Sarah mentions, definitely it's you know like passion and interest. But right. more often than not, it's also like a very economic decision. Mm-hmm. To
0: well, you can learn. You can learn to love. You don't have to. Lo- you can learn <laughs> you to, to love. love That's everything right. Everything day one. I've had a lot of jobs in my <laughs> life. Like I love technology, just flat out. But I've done a lot of things with it where I'm like utterly exhausted in that first couple of weeks, and then afterwards I'm like, Yeah, yeah. Oh, this is fascinating. Like you know you just yeah. the same is true of tech like if you're if you're alienated by it at first, like you can learn to love it. It does take a minute, and the culture doesn't always help, but the the actual <laughs> material is good.
1: What do you think is the biggest misconception people have about bootcamp graduates? Ooh, oh, that's a really good question. The biggest misconception about boot camp graduates, probably that. I think people assume that they know less than they actually do, which is unfortunate. I think that I I don't know the the demographic breakdown, but I know that a lot of bootcamp graduates don't start learning at the bootcamp. They've been learning how to code for months, sometimes even years before they get to the bootcamp. And then they get to the bootcamp to kind of solidify their education and have that foundational knowledge. But they've been like coding and building their portfolio and doing a lot of, you know, code examples and tutorials and all that for a long time before the bootcamp. And so I think that a lot of people assume that if you do a three month bootcamp, that means that you have only three months of experience coding and that a lot of the work you do on the side late at night, after work, early morning, like that doesn't really count, which is unfortunate. I think a lot of that side hustle, a lot of that grinding doesn't really count towards the education. So that's probably the biggest misconception.
2: And I wonder to what degree, like some of the experiences that you bring in from those other departments could be really useful, like you're saying. Mm -hmm. You know, if you come in as a lawyer, if you come in having worked in marketing and design, that might make you able to better design features, better, you know, work better across departments. Like you're bringing a big skill set that doesn't just have to do with the six months you spent, you know, mastering um, some of the entry level languages. Let's switch things up for a minute and talk a bit about. Social media, which is always great. What's happening there? How people are exchanging ideas in a positive way, but too positive. Uh <laughs> Surren, you, you introduced to us the concept of toxic positivity, which I'm not familiar with, but it sounds yeah. oxymoronic. So <laughs> try to define it for us, and then we'll work through how we'll just solve the problem. I'll solve it.
1: And yes, we won't have it we'll anymore. solve it. Yeah. There we go. I love this. Yeah. So it's a term that um, I didn't make it up. It was a term that I saw on Twitter a little while ago, maybe about a week ago. And I've seen a lot of conversation around it. And so I just posed the question to my community and I was like, what, you know, what is this? How do you feel about it? So the general, and people have different variations of what they think toxic positivity is. I think the definition that it seems that most people agree on is this idea of being so, so positive such that you dismiss people's actual problems and actual reasons for either failure or just not being where they want to be. So an example of this is if I said something like, I did it in six months, you should do it too. All you need to do is work hard, no excuses. That's, (laughs) (laughs) you know, like the intention is, you know, probably to inspire and to encourage, but it's also like, if it's taken me two years because I have like three kids and I'm a single mom and I'm working my butt off and I just can't do it, that hurts, you know. Like yeah. clearly it's not just like, oh, work hard and that's it. Like they're, you know, it's it's dismissing real circumstances. And it's particularly dismissive of people who have, you know, hardships, people who are discriminated against, people who just have different life circumstances that are just don't have privileges. That means that working hard is the only thing or the most important thing. And so yeah, so it's it's an interesting conversation topic because a lot of those tweets have always annoyed me. Like I've looked at them and like, oh, here we go again. You know, like it's, just, it's just kind of annoying. But I didn't realize that people were genuinely like upset about it until I started reading a bunch of people's uh, tweets and people having these conversations. And I was like, oh, this is like, People are really not happy about this. Interesting. So it was interesting. Human nature
0: yeah. is to think that you're doing somebody a favor when you say the words. I mean, if I can do it, anybody can. Like
1: you're right. It's very yeah. Innocent. You're, you're right.
0: coming. You're coming down <laughs> to everybody else's level and saying, "Look, look at look. I've, I've literally put the ladder right here. Look, check it out. Come on, come on to my side." And they're and they're looking at you yeah. and going, "I don't look like you." <laughs> I don't have what you have. I have two (laughs) kids. I have $1,400 in my bank account on a good day. And I have a really junior job maybe uh, over here. And you're telling me like all I have to do is just grind a little harder. That's not fair. And I I think on the other side, then the person is going like, oh, well, they're just jealous. right? They they just don't really want Mm. it. All of this is just like incredibly difficult because it's really, really hard for people on the other side.
1: Yeah. And I think like the the worst version of that is I've seen a lot of examples that are like, you know, I did it. You can do it, too, to find out how to do it. Here's my book. And I'm like, oh, God. So
2: this is the time in the episode where we shout out a lifeboater. Uh, So I'm going to give you just a quick overview here. Are you familiar with the lifeboat badge?
1: No, tell me about it.
2: Okay. So the lifeboat badge is awarded to somebody on Stack Overflow who answered a question that had a score of negative three or less, meaning it was going to be closed and not going to be answered. And now they have a score of 20 or more. Uh, So this week's lifeboat is in the iOS category. What is a super view and what is sub view? And the award was given to Kamar Shad. So thank you so much for answering that question, spreading some knowledge. And uh, yeah, seven years and eight months, people have been wondering that. So we appreciate it.
0: Good work, Kamar. Thank you. Good work.
1: Good work.
2: Thank you. All right, awesome. Let's say our goodbyes and where you can be found on the, the internet if you want to be found. I'm Ben Popper, Director of Content here at Stack Overflow. And you can find me on Twitter
0: at Ben Popper.
3: And I'm Sarah Chips. I'm Director of Community here at Stack Overflow, and you can find me at Sarah Joe on GitHub.
0: I'm Paul Ford, friend of Stack Overflow, co founder of a software and services firm called Postlight. You can find me at F Train on Twitter.
1: Hi, this is Saran Yitbarak. Uh, I am founder of Code Newbie, and you can find me on Twitter at Saran Yitbarak. First name, last name.
2: Woo! Awesome.